The reading for this morning is taken from the book of 1 Samuel. And today we'll be reading 1 Samuel chapter 5. You'll be able to find that on page 315 of your pew Bible. So Samuel has just taken his position as a prophet of the Lord, and he prophesied the uh, death of the two sons of Eli. Eli was the priest, high priest at the time. The, the death of the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, for their wickedness. And uh, they ended up taking the ark into battle, the ark of the covenant of God, the symbol of God's presence among his people. And the uh, people were, the people of Israel were defeated. The ark was captured, Hophni and Phinehas, and Eli had died. And that brings us to chapter 5. After the battle, then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. When the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod arose early in the morning, there was Dagon, fallen on its face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set it on its place again. And when they arose early the the next morning, there was Dagon, fallen on its face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. The head of Dagon and both of the palms of its hands were broken off in the threshold. Only Dagon's torso was left of it. Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor any who come into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. But the hand of the Lord was heavy on the people of Ashdod, and he ravaged them and struck them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how it was, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is harsh toward us and Dagon our God. And therefore they sent and gathered to themselves all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be carried away to Gath. So they carried the ark of the God of Israel away. So it was after they had carried it away that the hand of the Lord was against the city with a very great destruction. And he struck the men of the city, both small and great, and tumors broke out on them. Therefore they sent the ark of God to Ekron. So it was as the ark of God came to Ekron, that the Ekronites cried out, saying, They have brought the ark of the God of Israel to us to kill us and our people. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it go back to its own place so that it does not kill us and our people. For there was a deadly destruction throughout all the city. The hand of God was very heavy there. And the men who did not die were stricken with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. So far, the word of God. Beloved congregation of our Savior and Lord, have you ever been in a situation where you were sharing the gospel with someone, or you defended the faith to someone, and then you walked away feeling like a complete failure? Have you ever been in a situation where you, as a parent, came to your child 
and your child had just sinned, your child had just done something rebellious or done something wrong, and you came alongside them and you wanted to pray with them and you wanted to call them to repentance again, and there too, you walked away feeling like a failure. Have you ever had it that you wanted to do something for the kingdom of God, and yet you walked away feeling like a failure? It's good to be reminded in such times of the power of our God. And it's good to be reminded of the wisdom of our God in guiding us. But it also brings the question to mind. It also causes us, or should cause us, to think, does our God really need us? We have this tendency to think it all rides on us, that it all rides on what we, were do- we are doing. But sh- these moments should cause us to step back and think, does our God really need us? Up to this point, the people of Israel felt very strongly that God's power behind them was what helped them to take over the land in our text today. And if God wanted them to fulfill their destiny, He would have to follow them into their battles, wouldn't He? They had, even when God had sent them a defeat as a warning of unrepentant sin that was among them, they had tried to take God's ark into battle and use it as an idol to try force his hand. Use it as an image of God's presence among them to try force his hand and to try draw his attention to that particular battle where they were in. To use his power against the enemy. After all, they thought God should be there for them, should he not? He wanted them to take over the land. He had said that before. And he needed their armies to accomplish that, didn't he? It was riding on them. But what they had missed was that God, in his gathering together this nation and bringing them to this land and building a place for them, God was building for himself a holy people. The taking of the land was just the way in which he was creating space for himself to make this holy people a home. But it was also a way to sanctify them. The process was a way to sanctify them and make them holy. In looking to our passage today, we will see that it is true. The Lord does not need us to fight for him. But we'll see how this plays out in our passage under the following theme and points. First of all, the Lord does not need us to fight for him, not in the spiritual realm, not in the physical realm, and yet he calls us to a holy war. First of all, we'll see how the Lord does not need us to fight for him in the spiritual realm. Now, some people have this mistaken idea that the spiritual realm is all up to God. It's a non-physical, and it's the area that God handles beyond that we don't have a huge impact. 
Yet, that's not the case. And we know this from Ephesians. Passages like, we know this all over the Bible, but we know this specifically from passages like Ephesians 6 verse 12. That we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. The human opposition that we face in this world often has behind it demonic encouragement. Now don't get me wrong, humanity doesn't need any help to be evil in and of themselves. As the human race, we have been capable of devastatingly damaging wickedness against fellow human beings. And the Bible makes it clear that it's only God's restraining hand and some light of goodness that he has left in the world that prevents this world from being much worse than it is. But what happens is that the spiritual forces of evil that are in this world, they take advantage of that wickedness to target it particularly against the servants of the kingdom of God. And so we fight. In 2 Corinthians 10, the verses 4 to 6, we read, The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. That is how spiritual warfare looks to the Apostle Paul. Using weapons that are not of this world, using the knowledge of the gospel and going to war against the ideology of this world. Ephesians 6, that we saw before, expands on this by speaking of putting on the full armor of God, and we'll get to that later. But the fact remains that we are involved in a spiritual war And we do fight this spiritual war. However, the question is, while God uses us as instruments, does He need us? When we have a particularly good run at St. Mary's, defending the arguments of atheists and Catholics that are tossed against us, or against agnostics in the workplace, or wherever else, can we take pride in that? That we're on a roll for the kingdom of God. That we're spiritual heroes who should be praised to the skies for our work. Does God need us to fight these battles in order for him to win? The answer to that is a most emphatic no. And we see a very clear picture of that in our passage today, beginning with the fall of the god Dagon. So who was the god Dagon? In Deuteronomy 32, verses 16 to 17, we read how Moses says, Israel provoked the Lord to jealousy with foreign gods. With abominations they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons, not to God. To gods they did not know to new gods, new arrivals that your fathers did not fear. The gods that the other nations served were not truly gods. They were demons, we learn here in Deuteronomy. Dagon would probably have been no different. 
as one member of the Philistine pantheon of gods, the being that was on the receiving end of their pagan worship was likely a demon. But who exactly was this God to the Philistines? They wouldn't have seen him as a demon. They would have seen him as an actual God. And who was he to them? Because his name is similar to the Hebrew word for fish, many people have long thought that Dagon was a fish god. Assyrian carvings of half-human, half-fish creatures seem to lend support to this idea until further research was done. It seems now that the Philistines saw him more likely as a god who was connected with fertility and agriculture. He was the god who was watching over them. He was the god who was the god of their area, the regional god of the Philistines. He was the one who they would have looked to for protection. He was the one that they obviously had looked to for guidance in this war when they went against Israel because they had brought the ark of God back to his temple. Now, in the ancient world, when you went to war against a nation, your gods also went to war against their gods, or so they thought. For the Philistines, this would have been no different. Their success over the Israelites would have seemed to them to be a triumph over their God as well. And to show everyone that they truly believed that this was a triumph of their God, they had moved this ark, this symbol of the conquered nation's God, and put it at the foot of the statue of Dagon. But God is subject to nothing and to no one. And not even a demon could stand before him. Even the demons must bow their knee before God, even if it is just with fear and trembling. The next morning, the priests of the house of Dagon, they wake up and see. To their horror, their God has fallen down in the presence of the ark on its face. They would have immediately understood the symbolism of this. To fall down on your face was a sign of respect, of worship even. They couldn't allow their God to take such a position, especially not in his own temple. Shocked, they put the idol of Dagon back in his place. But in the morning again, Dagon has fallen. And not only has he fallen, but we read the head of Dagon and both of the palms of his hands were broken off on the threshold and only Dagon's torso was left of it. And because of the sacredness of these parts of their idol, this head had rolled all the way to the threshold. The people, the worshipers of Dagon, they no longer stepped on the threshold from that day to the day the book of Samuel was written. But they recognized this as a spiritual defeat of their God. There was no other way to see it. God was victorious. And he had defeated and broken their God. This would have been a huge comfort to the nation of Israel, although they did not know it at the time. It can seem sometimes that Satan and his forces are overwhelming. It can seem sometimes like demonic forces are very frightening. But they had, and we have, a God who is a God of power, and He's a God of victory. 
He's a God who's in control and a God who will win even in the spiritual realm. God was showing the Philistines that while other nations might need military victories to prove their might over other gods, he didn't need to have Israel winning to show that he was God. He is the God of heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. He was the God whom they recognized just in the last chapter as having defeated the armies of Egypt and humbled their God, King Pharaoh. He didn't need human victories to feed his power. He is God, and besides him there is no other. He showed this by shattering their pride through literally breaking their idol to pieces. God doesn't need the prayers or the victories of mankind to win in the spiritual realm. He doesn't need to rely on your cooperation to win your spiritual wars. And that's ultimately a comforting thought for us. Because we know that we have a God who is bigger than our spiritual struggles. But he's not only bigger than our spiritual struggles and our spiritual concerns, but he's also bigger than our physical concerns. And we can see that in the second point that our passage draws our attention to. The Lord does not need us to fight for him in the physical realm. Having been thoroughly embarrassed by the submission of their God to Israel's God, the priests could at least take comfort in the fact that this God was under their control. That Israel could no longer hurt them, Israel could no longer damage them because they had their God. They were holding on to Him. Or so they thought. But God showed His power in this. While they were resting in the comfort that they had defeated Israel, and they were rejoicing in the victory that once again placed them as the overlords and Israel as the servants, God himself went to war against them. You see, the Philistines had the same idea as all of the surrounding nations, that gods were regional gods, and that they only had power where they were. You can see a similar attitude in the story when the Syrians went against Israel in 1 Kings 20, verses 23 to 30. They believed that they could fight and be victorious in the plains because the Lord was God of the hills but not of the valleys. They believed that he was a regional power. But God showed his power in both that situation and in this one, that his power has no boundaries. He fights where he pleases and he has victory where he pleases. One city after another, he afflicts with plagues. One Philistine city after another falls to tumors and to rats. Some people have thought that this could be some localized form of the bubonic plague, which is carried by the fleas on rats and presents itself by swollen lymph glands. These from the surface would look like tumors to them. But whatever it was, whether plague or not, it was a disaster for the people of Philistia. And so the people of Philistia fell before the Lord, the God of Israel. One city after another fell before Yahweh, Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies of heaven. 
Now God was doing this in the face of the failure of the people of Israel. He had called them to slowly but surely drive out the nations around them. And they had been doing that to a certain extent, but God had called them to do it as a holy war. God's whole purpose in having the people travel through the desert wastelands to feel the sting of their enemies was to refine them and to have them turn to Him. The whole purpose of Him giving them victories that were bigger than they should have been able to have was to remind them to rely on Him, to purify their worship and have them become aware of things which stood out to distract them from worship. But it was not just for them personally. When they went into war, it was to be as a punishment, a holy punishment to the nations. It was a sign of God's judgment on the people who inhabited the land. And you can read about that in Genesis 15, verse 16. The wickedness of the people of Canaan had reached its fullness. And God was going to show the world that he was not mocked. Child sacrifice, sexual immorality, bestiality, and so many other acts being not only freely indulged by these people, but even promoted by the gods of these nations, was something that was horrifying, and it disgusted God. Now, while Israel enjoyed a personal relationship with God, it didn't make God any less of of God of the rest of the world. These nations were descendants of the sons of Noah, and so they should have received the knowledge of God passed down to them through the generations. They should have cried out to Him, recognizing Him as Lord. But even aside from that, they knew the worst of what was abhorrent to God through the light of nature itself. God teaches us in Romans 1 that His eternal power and His divine nature is known to them. And He also teaches there that to go after something other than God is a deliberate choice on the part of man. To keep on stubbornly doing that instead of turning to the true God often means that God will give them over to sin. Romans 1 verse 24 to 25, therefore God gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Their constant oppression of the poor, their burning babies and young children alive as sacrifices, their worshipping of idols, which were no more than extensions of their own lusts, allowing them to freely take part in wickedness, all this and more deeply angered God. And it was the people of Philistia who were involved in this as well. They, with the rest of the nations, went deeper and deeper into sin, and their sin had reached its fullness, and the cry had gone up to heaven. But God only puts up with sin for so long, and then He punishes it. And in this particular case, He was using the nation of Israel to purify the land. But the people had taken what was meant to be holy, what was meant to purify them as a people and what was meant to purify the land and they had made it for personal gain. They had turned it into a land grab and they had tried to turn the Lord into their personal weapon of mass destruction. 
They had made their war into a desire to become free from the oppression of enemies that they faced. They had made it into a desire for peace and stability. Knock down the neighbors and you won't have them as a threat on your borders for a while. They had made it that they would be preeminent. And they thought the Lord would help them. Because after all, didn't the Lord say that that was his ultimate goal? To them, it didn't matter how they got there, right? But in all of that, they had lost sight of what was truly the purpose of God's work among them. To purify the people and to purify the land, refining them. They forgot that the Lord didn't need them for his battles. If it was just a question of conquest, he could take care of it himself. And they forgot that if they didn't obey, the Lord would let them fail. If they lost sight of the Lord's goal, he would let them fail. He had the power to defeat their enemies without their help. He didn't need them to make his name great. And this should be a reminder to us as well. We can face the world without God's priorities, and perhaps we'll do all right for a while, and maybe we won't. But God doesn't need us to accomplish His will in the world. He's perfectly capable of taking care of everything Himself. He does, however, want to make us holy through this fight. And that brings us to our third point. He calls us to a holy war. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 7 for a moment. Deuteronomy 7. To get a picture of what the Lord had intended, to get a full picture of what the Lord had intended by this holy war, we need to see a little bit of the background of what the Lord had planted, what the Lord had made for them. And remember while reading this, that it was, remember the context in which the Lord was speaking. Remember that it was not only sexual immorality, but the burning alive of children and the oppressing of the poor and so many other atrocities that they committed that led the Lord to this point. Remember the depth of the depravity. Deuteronomy 7, the verses 1 to 11, we read there, When the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you. And when the Lord delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them, nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughter for your son. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall destroy their altars and break down their sacred pillars and cut down their wooden images and burn their carved images with fire. 
Here we can see the aim of the Lord in purifying the land and destroying their false doctrines and destroying their uh, altars. The idea being that nothing would remain of this poisonous, these poisonous forms of worship. Nothing would corrupt the people. Why? Well, verse 6, For you are a holy people of the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself a special treasure above all the peoples of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Therefore know that the Lord your God, he is God, And the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. And he repays those who hate him to their face to destroy them. He will not be slack with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Therefore you shall keep the commandment, the statutes and the judgments which I command you today to observe them. Israel had failed in this in their conquest of the land. And they had lost sight of the purpose of this holy war. They had not obeyed and they had not chosen to take part in this holy war, or at least not as a holy war. And yet we can see something beautiful here today, brothers and sisters. In our passage, 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 5. God did not give up on them, and he did not immediately destroy them. But rather, God fought for them. Isn't that an incredible thought? You would think that after being so disappointed with his people that he would let them feel the loss of his presence to the point of taking away the ark from them, that he would give up on them. Yet God recognized that they were not a people who were better or more worthy than others. He remembered that it was on the basis of his choice of them, not on the basis of their personal goodness, that he was their God. He remembered that. And he remembered that they would fall short. They would fall short. And so he fought for them. He did not allow the Philistines to become the oppressors once more, as they thought they would, and Israel to remain the servants, but God fought for them. Remember this, beloved, when God feels far away. Remember Israel in this situation. They deserve nothing from God, yet He fought for them. This holy war continued even though they were casualties, even though they were failures in this war. They had despised God and tried to use him for their own benefit, and they had felt the consequences of that. Yet God fought for them, even while he himself seemed far from them, even while to their point of view he had abandoned them, maybe forever. Now they didn't know what was going on behind the scenes, but God did, and he fought for them. And he fights for you. 
If you are his people and you put your trust in him through Jesus Christ, his son, then even if you have fallen into sin and God feels far away, know this, God is still fighting. God is still there. If you are grieved that you've offended God by your sin and you hate it and you want to flee from it and seek God, He's still there. He's fighting. Consider this passage from Romans 5, verses 8 and 10 for a moment. That God demonstrates His own love towards us. Even while we were sinners, Christ died for us. For if When we are enemies, we are reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. As God had said to Israel in Deuteronomy 7, the passage we just read, there was nothing to attract Him to the people. And we see this echoed in the New Testament as well. There's nothing to attract God to us. We were, according to this passage in Romans, enemies of Him. And this passage calls us to remember, if He was willing to love us, and even let Christ die for us when we were enemies, to reconcile the relationship again, do you think, Christian, that He'll give up on you so easily simply because you fell once again. If you have truly turned to him in repentance and faith, do you really think that he'll leave you in the dark, weeping and knocking on the door, begging to come in, after he's given up everything for you to begin with? He is fighting for you. If You are his people. He is fighting for you. Do you really think that while he is fighting for you, he would leave you alone in the dark? Come to him in true repentance and faith and see this God who fights for you. Turn to his people and ask for their help and see how Christ reaches out to you and ministers to you through them, through his body. And having experienced how he fights for you, even when he seems far away, pick up your weapons and enter once again with renewed fervor and zeal into this holy war. Don't let the fact that you have stumbled and fallen sideline you. As for your failings, God knows our weaknesses and failures. He knew the weaknesses and failures of his people in 1 Samuel 5 as well. And yet he still delights in using us despite all of our stumblings. He uses our attempts and our love for those we interact with despite how weak it is. He knows us. So he knows that when we fight, when we come alongside our children to pray, when we share the gospel with those around us, he knows it'll be inadequate, and yet he uses it all the same. 
And in doing so, he shapes us and he molds us into his holy people more and more every day. Isn't that incredible? Isn't it amazing that God would choose to use us as vessels? He would not only fight this holy war by himself, but even though he doesn't need us, he would choose to use us as vessels, as instruments to accomplish his will in this world and to advance his kingdom. Isn't it amazing that he would choose you and me, broken though we are, to show his grace to this world, to show his grace to our spouses, to our children, to our siblings, to our parents, to our neighbors, to the world. We should be humbled that God should choose us as instruments of his will. And so, he do, and he does this with Christ as our captain. Christ, who has already won the decisive battle in this war. Christ, whose death has accomplished it all for us. And whose spirit gives us everything we need to pick up our weapons and fight. So in his strength, in the words of Paul to the Ephesians, take up true warfare. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Beloved brothers and sisters, fight. Amen.